cloud. Okay, hello, beautiful humans. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Stoa. As a reminder, this is a fully community-funded project. So if you enjoy listening, you can support our work by sending some sats to the QR code on our website at bitcoinstoa.com, or you can stream or sat or stream or boost sats while you're listening through something like the Fountain app. And as a side note, you can actually earn sats by listening to podcasts on Fountain app, which is super dope and um, kind of still blows my mind. Uh, current Moscow time is 41.38 at 7.47.093. And with that said, it's my honor to welcome Mike Hobart to the STOA for a conversation about how fiat incentivizes disease and how Bitcoin can lead us into a future that incentivizes health. So Mike, welcome to the STOA. Hell yeah, dude. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. I'm not, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm humble to a fault, to like a fault or I'm trying to figure that out. I've been trying to figure that out for a long time, but like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to like force myself on these podcasts. So like every time that you guys like ask me to come on, I'm, I'm honored, but I'm, I'm excited to, to riff with you for a while. I mean, you seem like you know your shit. So, you know, the rea the reason I started the Stoa is like, I would be having these conversations anyway. If all I have to do is hit record and do a little bit of work to post it and one other person on earth can benefit, um, that's a good thing. So, you know, yeah. why not? And it well, also- it, give, it, it gives you the capability to like, if it was like a really good conversation, like the one we're about to have, like you can just go back. Yeah, you can go back. Well, you can clip it. You can go back and like re-experience it like a viewer and then just yep. like figure out like- where we failed or where we did well it's like it's there's just a lot of benefits i agree the idea of archiving your perspective and then revisiting it a year later to see like how much have you you know sometimes as you change your mind it's so incremental that it seems like you're not really changing your mind but i've listened yeah. to podcasts i recorded a couple of years ago for the health network i'm like shit i've really changed my mind on that but i wouldn't have really realized it so i think it you're right i think it's uh serves a good purpose for that as well yep um so thanks for being here appreciate your time very excited to dive into this topic today and exchange perspectives and maybe to give a bit of context people listening uh cole's notes on july 5th mike posted a tweet that said keynesian economics is an attack on physical psychological emotional and spiritual health and uh you know i kind of work at the um intersection of bitcoin and health saw that and i was like shit that seems like something really interesting uh <laughs> and i commented and asked if you wanted to unpack it further on a podcast and uh here we are. So thank you for making that tweet. Thank you for being here. And maybe a good place to start, which is an uncommon one. Um, but I think it's extremely important is like, let's have a chat about about how we define health, because we're going to talk about health, we're going to talk about disease. Before we even start throwing those words out there, I think health is one of those words kind of like Bitcoin, where like everyone has their own definition and meaning um, with the word health. And you know, it'd probably be a good launch pad to just start by riffing on like, you know, how do you define health? So what, you know, when someone says health or when you use the word health, when you're talking, how do you actually define that? What do you, um, yeah, run with that and see where it goes. Well, that's a really densely packed question. Um, so obviously there's going to be different nuances to basically every point of it, but what I, if I am just talking about health in passing, Personally, I'm referring to typically the, the physiological and the nutritional as far as health goes. Um, but like you said, there is still very much like the spiritual side. There's the psychological side. And then there's also what you, there's definitely the philosophical side to it. Like it's like kind of like a full, full spectrum kind of attack on it. 
but uh, somebody that's healthy, in my opinion, as far as a definition would go, um, it would have it would it would be in an individual that isn't experiencing significant conflict within within like the the dynamic of that full spectrum, like I just mentioned. Like like somebody is healthy if they physically if they aren't like disease ridden or ridden with complications that are like because like now here's where we're getting into the nuance is somebody that's for the nuance Fuck yes, the boring right? superficial somebody stuff that's let's dive in healthy is going to be somebody that has found a way to live with their body that isn't causing them undue harm or difficulty in my opinion. So somebody that has say type one diabetes, if they have a routine and a regimen and a diet that allows them to go about living their life without significant like friction, I think that they're, I would argue that they're healthy because they have a condition that's technically classified as a disease, right? But it's not something that they can necessarily do anything about, or at least that's, that's, that's how the health field classifies it now there's always the possibility that down the road we find some like there is actually a cure for it or something Mm -hmm. um same goes for like cancers or other conditions like or ailments like that but somebody that isn't that isn't healthier somebody that is unhealthy in my opinion would be somebody that is complaining about depression or alcoholism or these other conditions but they aren't taking the steps to try and alleviate those problems um, and that's where like specifically nutrition and physical activity make they make strides on like progressing people away from those ailments. Um, I think that that's an answer to your question. I don't know for sure. So I like it. I mean, you touched on a really big point that I um, like hold pretty close in terms of my core definition, which is that health is more of a health is a process, not a destination. And this idea that we Thanks. attach um, you know, like uh, a snapshot of someone's state, we often like to label it as healthy or unhealthy, right? Like if you're overweight, you're unhealthy. If you're depressed, you're unhealthy. That's yeah, a misnomer. Yeah, because it insinuates a fixed state, right? And it's like, um, really what matters and what you got to is what is the person doing about it? So what are they engaging with the process of health? Because you, you can be extremely overweight and still be engaging every day with the process of health. And I would consider that person healthy because they're, they're making, they're taking action basically to, um, achieve better health. And so I think my favorite definition that I've ever heard is health is the process of learning how to take better care of myself because that doesn't actually, man, I wish you would have said that. I mean, you know, I have a shitload. <laughs> I've asked a thousand people literally about our health network to get into our, like, you know, it's like a private Facebook without all the garbage ads it's free, but the only cost is you got to answer the question. And we have 1600 people that have answered that question. So I just dive into, you know, I think we all should have our own subjective definition of health, but there's probably some common threads. I think one of the big ones that I see in those answers is the absence of disease. But I, part of me also feels that the absence of disease is kind of a low bar, right? Like not being diseased is not really the definition of health. I think like thriving and every day putting energy into taking care of yourself something that i think is really relevant for bitcoiners because they actually have the time to do that um yeah really matters right bitcoin seems to have this ability to nudge us towards what matters and i think um health is like 
you know, is, a, is, is one of the big things that matters if you actually have these um, truthful values, right? Without yeah, health, will... like time is scarce, but without health, time is a burden. So it's like health is the key element to make time worthwhile and scarce and meaningful. So, yeah. And, and, to, and to that point too, is like, if, if you're focusing more on trying to have pristine health, but you're not enjoying your life, like right. if you're like, Cause like, there's a difference between somebody who enjoys being healthy and is just like very proud of that. But then there's somebody who is maybe farther away from the perfect health spectrum, but they are really enjoying their life. Like I would rather that, that individual that is like, that's relatively healthy, but is enjoying like their life and their time more as far as like, maybe they're not making the perfect health decisions, but they're doing what they want. I mean, I would, I, I would classify them as healthier than somebody who's trying to just live a perfectly pristine, healthy life. Like that's, that doesn't, that almost sounds like a fake life to me. That's not like, I, I don't, I don't want to have perfect health for the sake of having perfect health. Like that, that doesn't necessarily make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an unhealthy pursuit of health and what the fuck is yeah. perfect health, right? It's like, you know, this idea that we have this Holy grail, I think that's part of the misnomer of, um, labeling healthy as this like state we're trying to get to, um, is like, it's this weird thought where once you get there, you don't have to do anything. And that's not, that's not true. Every day you have to engage with the process, right? It might be to a higher degree some days or to a lower degree other days, but I think yep. living a pleasant life, um, is part of health. And if you're sacrificing your happiness and miserable on your pursuit of health, I think that's unhealthy. Um, yeah. but once again, it's like, Everyone has to have their own opinion, but I think airing that out is important. Um, and it's, it's almost like if you break down the word disease on the other end of the spectrum, it breaks down to dis-ease. So it's almost like health would be ease, right? The state of um, not Fluidity. being constantly challenged or struggling, um, you know, that's kind of a good duo um, to kind of pair that up. But but I think we have a lot of disease these days. I think we have, a you know, on all the fronts that you mentioned, you know, physical, psychological, um, emotional, um, environmental. I think, you know, it's almost like we have capital B and lowercase B Bitcoin, like Bitcoin, the network, and then Bitcoin, the asset. I, mm -hmm. I like the idea of lowercase H health as in like individual health and then capital health as in like individual collective environmental health, like capital H health is really Full what matters. Health. Yeah. Because I, you know, if you disconnect the environment, the health of the environment from the health of the human, you, you never end up solving the problem, right? Like I, I read your article, you've, you've written some amazing stuff for Bitcoin magazine, this idea Thank that you. we can talk, this idea that we can talk about health without even starting with a conversation about soil health, which is like the foundation that all of individual health is built on is kind of absurd, right? It's like, yeah. um, very narrow, narrow minded. So, um, let's talk about Let's talk about disease for a sec. Um, and, you know, cause we're going to talk about how fiat incentivizes disease culture and essentially dismantles health and how Bitcoin can possibly uh, incentivize health culture. But, you know, like, what are your thoughts on the state of, <laughs> of, uh, of humanity within the context of health right now? Like, what do you see in your day-to-day -day life that, that would maybe reiterate the fact that we are in a disease centric culture? We have a really big health problem uh, and then, yeah, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. You want to talk about it from like a North American centric 
So if we talk about disease, how does that, like, let's give some concrete examples. Um, You know, like if we say we live in a disease culture and we got a big problem with disease right now, let's make it concrete for people. So how do you see it? Like concrete examples of like the mental health problem, the physical health problem, the environmental health problem. Let's just talk about like what would indicate to us concretely that we are living in an era of disease right now, because someone who's listening to this might not actually think that's the truth. So how can we just provide a deeper explanation of our experience of why we think that? Well, um, I don't know if it's the low, low hanging fruit, but the the thread that kind of ties it all together is just radical ignorance and lack of accountability Mm -hmm. Um, on a market wide spectrum, all the way down to the individual. Um, so when it comes to like physical health, we can talk about, um, alcohol and drug abuse. Um, we can talk about the fact that, what is it? 70% of the foods that are in grocery stores are processed and extremely dopaminergic, which mean like, what I mean by that is they're specifically relying on, um, high carbohydrate and sodium content. Um, those are probably the big ones as far as like pharmaceutical, because then like, I mean, you, you want to talk about drug abuse. Let's, let's include sugar in that. Cause I think that's yeah. actually what it is. Yeah. Well, it's, and you can include sugar. You can include salt. Technically you can include yeah. caffeine. Um, those are the ones that nobody wants to talk about either, by the way, because it is technically drug abuse. Yes. It's just widely accepted. Yes. Right. It's normalized. It's, it, yeah. It's like the difference between, um, it's like the difference between alcohol consumption and marijuana. Like one of them's radically healthier than the other. And the other is actually, well, largely still illegal. (laughs) It's just, it's just asinine. But um, the, the ignorance that I was talking about, or that I was kind of touching on would be all ignorance and accountability. We'll kind of touch on both of those because large portions of the population especially in the United States. Well, and from what I've been reading is much of Europe is becoming almost United, United States defied, I yeah. guess you could say. I think um, Canada and Australia could be lumped in there too. Very, okay. um, you know, it's like this West, it's like a, I think it's okay to generalize this into a Western culture. Cause I think largely it's true. Yeah. And, um, the populations like start is like, it kind of started in the U S but now it's like spreading, almost infecting the rest of Western culture everybody's getting fat. Yeah. Like everybody is getting fat and you got to think about why. And the, the two biggest reasons are the diet. Like I just mentioned how it's highly over overly processed. Um, the diets nowadays aren't nutrient dense. They are calorie dense and there's a very big difference. And on top of that, nobody wants to work out. Nobody wants to work out. Everybody wants to take, everybody's trying to get like this, like pharmaceutical drug that's just going to make all the fat melt off of them. It's not how the body works. And I would even go a layer deeper and say, it's not that people don't just not want to work out. They don't even want to move. No. Like, they, they, like literally, you don't even have to go to the gym, but just move. Like don't be a blob slug in one spot because then your body adapts to that. Well, um, and you know, like what they're doing when they aren't moving Specifically, they don't want to move because they want to kick off those dopaminergic pathways. They want to play video games. They want to consume music. They want to consume drugs. They want to consume alcohol. They want to watch movies. 
They want to hear music. Like all of that is dopamine response. All of it. Like looking at it, like looking at the screens we're looking at right now, blue light kicks off dopamine. And then the music kicks off dopamine, movies, video games, all of it. Like everybody just wants to sit in front of a screen, get their dopamine high, which is a problem because if you understand anything about drug and alcohol abuse and tolerance, it's like the body is designed, like if there's a specific hormone or compound that gets constant like exposure to, it jacks up the tolerance so it's not overdoing it. So yeah, your receptors downregulate. So you need more and more of it just to get that yeah. state. Yeah. And so that, and that, like, that means that the dopamine high isn't going to stay the same. So like all these, all these people that are playing, I used to play video games all the time. I like, I still consider myself a gamer and I love video games. They're a really cool way for storytelling and all that other stuff. But that being said, like anybody that's played a video game, when you first start playing it, you're just excited to be playing it because it's something new. But like it, like with call of duty, after you play for a while, the, the high wears off and you just get frustrated the whole time. Mm. And so like, like, and you, people aren't paying attention to all this stuff. And it's just, it's frustrating to me because like I went to college, I got my bachelor's in exercise science. And once you learn how the body operates, you really understand why moderation is key for everything. Because then you, you don't want to have the dopamine down regulating like you brought up. You don't want to have the, uh, the insulin tolerance jacking up because you're just consuming straight sugar all day, every day. Like, well, the funny thing is back to like, you know, the health stuff is like, I'm drinking like just liquid sugar and caffeine right now, but I do it in moderation. That's like the first one I've had in like three weeks. Um, yeah. But, like, even when you mentioned that before we started recording this idea that nothing out of context can be considered healthy or unhealthy, right? It yeah. all requires context. Having one uh, liquid sugar, mainlining one can of liquid sugar is very different from mainlining six cans a day, right? Like yeah. the consequences on your body are um, wildly different. And I think this whole idea that everyone is just seeking out that dopamine fix, um, you know, like you can, you can pick whatever hypernormal stimulus, right? It can be coffee, it can be alcohol, it can be porn, it can be donuts, it can be so many different All things. But everyone is seeking this. Like when I go walk down the street, um, phones, I think we, we can't skip over oh, the phones, phones because awful. they're like dopamine slot machines these days. And this, this idea <laughs> that when I go for a walk and just observe, I see giant lineups in front of donut stores. I see everyone's eyeballs glued to their phone. I, I, I mean, we live in Canada, so cannabis is more, you know, it's recreational, but it's everywhere. It's like scary how at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, I'll walk along, I'll see a couple of people smoking joints. It's like, what do you do with your life that you can just crush joints at 1 p.m.? <laughs> like, you know, so I think this idea that, I think that's my indicator for disease, right? Because everyone is trying to find something to soothe their pain. That's really what I think when I see these people. It's like, what is making you suffer so much that Ooh, you need then, all these things? Then there you go. Then we could define pain too, because yeah, because like like what like what exactly are all these people relying on this drug to escape from? Yes. Right. What's the pain? And, yeah. Well, and like because like what like the the pain can be. It could be like the low hanging fruit would be like some sort of disease, like glaucoma or something. I'm smoking physical pain. Yeah. Um, physical pain specifically like neuropathy and all that other stuff. But I think that there's more of a, um, now that like, 
you can stop me here if you want, because this is kind of getting into another topic that you wanted to bring up. No, no let's go. Um, let's go into this for a sec. Okay. Because I think the biggest pain is really like what people are trying to escape from is more of a pain of like feeling like they're not doing enough with their life. Like they're not like they're, they're, they're experiencing almost kind of like a philosophical spiritual pain Yes, because they're not pushing themselves hard enough. They know that they could be doing better, but they're see like, but they're so stuck in their ways and their routine of seeking out comfort versus actually trying to like go out and do what they, and accomplish things that they like, they believe that they could. Right. Um, this goes back to actually, uh, I think it was yesterday morning or the day before uh, speaking with the, the cafe and Swan cafe, Bitcoin and Swan guys in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned how not a lot of people realize that the risk of breaking their routine is getting perceived by the individual as a, as a danger because one thing about biological life that when you're studying exercise science or biology in general is that you realize that most living organisms are designed to be routine. Like everything about their life is routinized. You can talk about you know, like circadian rhythm, um, sex hormone maintenance, autophagy, like just breaking down food. Like all of this other stuff is, is routinized. Like, it, like you, you have to have this routine to like build up efficiencies in the systems and all this like across the board. Yeah. The body um, wants homeostasis. That is the goal at all times. Yeah. And you, and you can't, and like in a biological organism where like you're, you, if you're going to remain adaptable, right. You're, you can't be a computer where homeostasis is a constant. Like it ha- there has to be fluctuations to, to kind of like react to adaptability and like live in a dynamic like scenario or environment, which the normal, like, and this even touches on stuff that uh, Alex Epstein's brought up in his book, Fossil Future. The climate is extremely dynamic, like the environments that we all live in, extremely dynamic, extremely dangerous. So if our bodies are intended to establish homeostasis in an extremely dangerous and environment, dangerous and dynamic environment, you have to be adaptable, which means that you have to have the, the fluctuating systems that are going to establish a kind of a, a rhythm or a routine. Yeah. And, and what people don't realize is that once you have a routine and it becomes, it becomes routinized to the point of where you're comfortable in it. Once you're comfortable in your routine, things that challenge the routine become an attack on you, an attack mm-hmm. on your identity. Yeah. And I think, I think the people that are the most unhealthy in Western society are the people that have routinized these extremely unhealthy living practices or lifestyles. So when they get told that they should start working out, they immediately think about the discomfort that's going to happen because discomfort is very much real within working out and especially changing a routine. And so one thing that the human brain also does very, very well, is kind of like a defense mechanism in a way, is that when we perceive danger or pain, we project it into perpetuity into the future. So, because it, it that that way, if you because if you find yourself in a very difficult, painful situation, your bot your brain does that to spark you to push you into changing that, so you're not constantly in pain and discomfort for the rest of your life. 
But when we do it psychologically, when we think about how our routine is getting challenged or our lifestyle is getting challenged and we're experiencing discomfort now, like you say, if you're someone who hasn't been working out for your life and then you start squatting or deadlifting and you're experiencing that new pain and you like in your pain thresholds are extremely low and you're so you're extremely sensitive to that pain and discomfort, you're going to just assume that it's going to go on like that in the future. Like the, cause, and that, and that, and this gets into like anxiety and depression and all this other stuff too, is that what I think is going on is people are approaching like anxiety, for example, like you shouldn't be experiencing anxiety at all. Like, that's not true. Like you you should absolutely be experiencing anxiety because that's, that means that your brain is telling you, Hey, something is kind of off. And that, like that's your brain operating like you're like it's supposed to. The problem is, is if you don't take the actions to change your dynamic to re- alleviate that situation, right? Yeah, it's like pain. I think the fundamental thing is a misunderstanding of pain as this thing that is to be avoided. Um, it's a and signal. It's, it's, and it's, it's information. That's all it is. Exactly, but it's it's a it's a lesson. It's a call for change. Fundamentally, it can be physical pain, it can be emotional pain. You know, it seems like this. This and then spiritual there, well, and then pain. There, then there's pain of injury and pain of growth. And those are very, very different. Yes, exactly. And but it's it's really about how you interpret the signal, right? This this idea yeah. that so many people have no sense of meaning today. The world is in constant chaos. They're finding it hard to just recalibrate and make sense of things. And I think you know we'll get into why. How does fiat introduce all this chaos that we are forced to deal with, and which can be painful to deal with? Um, the idea that once you experience pain, you have one of two choices: you can either change yourself and take action, or you can change the world by seeking something to dull that pain, right? It can be a pill, it can be a donut, it can be whatever. It can be a book, it can be whatever. There's so Another many person. things. Yes, it, there's so many things available to us today, more powerful than they ever have been before, right? This, this whole idea of hypernormal stimuli, it's like when you eat something that is unnaturally filled with liquid sugar, is a hypernormal stimuli. When you watch porn on the supercomputer in your pocket it is a hypernormal stimuli. It's beyond the threshold of what humans are designed to be exposed to. And it just hacks our brain because it's so addictive. Yep. People are opting to take the more comfortable um, decision the, of the just easier, soothing the themselves. Exactly. And they're not, like you said, change is hard. And this idea that the more you exercise uh, a pattern, the deeper that pattern ingrains, the harder it is to bump out of that, right? If every time I get uncomfortable, uh, I go have a beer, then that becomes my um, hardwired habit. And it become, the more I do that, the harder it becomes to not do that if I'm faced with a situation like that again. Yep. So yeah, it just seems like fiat incentivizes the availability of things to soothe ourselves and makes it so... Um, I mean, humans are designed to use as little energy as possible, right? This is like yeah. this, you know, like that's how you, that's how you seek out efficiencies, right? But we're not built to live in today's world. This is the fucking problem. So how do we solve this? And I think part of it has to be solved through incentivizing people understanding that pain is a valuable signal not to be avoided, right? Like I used to be a physical therapist. People come in with knee pain. They're in distress. They're anxious. They're all they're all flustered because they're like, I need to run. If I can't run. I'm going to be mentally unhealthy and be terrible to everyone around me. This knee pain is stopping me from running. This is a huge stress in my life, right? I don't know if this, I don't know if my knee's breaking down, if this is a permanent thing, if this is catastrophic, 
once you explain to them, like all you have is a little bit of joint irritation because you sit all freaking day and then you pound the pavement running and you can't use your ass to propel you forward. So your knee's doing five times the work. Once <laughs> they understand that and they understand that there is a cause to the problem, there is a way to eliminate the cause and there is an action they can take. All of a sudden, they're not really in as much pain anymore because they understand the pain. And because they the anxiety the is also leveraging their discomfort. Yes. It's like a vicious loop where they yeah. catastrophize all these weird scenarios that could happen that usually don't because they're uncertain of what the hell the pain is. And they get into this like tailspin where now they're, they're just trying to not be in pain all the time. So they're taking all these substances or engaging in all these shitty behaviors to, to make themselves feel better when really all they need is to understand the pain and be given some clarity. And I think the fiat system does not help us understand health at all. And so everyone yeah. is anxious as shit because everyone's feeling pain and no one knows what to do about it because they don't get it. They don't understand yep. that pain is good. <laughs> if you didn't have pain, you'd die because you'd well, kill yourself and, with the, you know, it's good. And especially for like the physical therapist, like yourself, like getting into the fiat and health, like intersection, one of the things that, so I got a degree in exercise science and a lot of people like, well, sometimes the first question is like, am I a personal trainer? Um, no, like I really don't like, I don't like the personal training profession, how it, how it is now today, it's, it's gotten so saturated mm. that programs like NASM, for example, um, they make it easy to become a personal trainer. But the problem is that there's so many personal trainers that aren't also good teachers like they aren't, they aren't like the personal trainers I've interacted with, which has been tons, especially the people that I graduated with. Um, they aren't like on the level of you and I, for example, like they don't try to analyze and explain all these different dynamics of educating the individual on like what their body is feeling and why, and how, like how the individual should like observe and pay attention and remain aware to like how their body is feeling, what it's doing all day especially in reaction to like what you're eating and consuming. Um, because it, it like when, like when the individual, it, when I'll say when, not if, because everybody's going to get hurt at some point in their life. Yep. Once an individual gets hurt and they don't understand their body and they don't know how to like stay aware of it and they don't know how to like properly approach like what's going on. They come to individuals like yourself, the physical therapist, and they're just feeling pain. They don't, they haven't sussed out what that pain is or what it could be from. Cause like you're, like you were saying, like the people that experience pain from going to the personal trainer for the first time, they don't know the difference between delayed onset muscle soreness and overtraining soreness and injury. Like they, they just don't know the difference because they haven't been paying attention to their body long enough to actually right. suss it out and everything. Yeah. They become and illiterate to their body signals. Basically if that's yes. I, I'm, I'm going to steal that from you now from going Go forward. forward. Everything the, I have, I stole from someone. So all good. <laughs> right. It's all just iteration of an iteration. Yeah. Um, Some, someone told me once it's not about not stealing. It's about stealing from a lot of, if you steal only from one person, that's copying. If you steal from everyone, uh, that's called innovation. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it's, yeah. It's called uh, amalgamation yeah. or uh, in aggregate. Yeah, um, that's what Bruce Lee did. Yeah. <laughs> but just like the the over the over fiatization of the economy is causing the over fiatization of all these other industries. 
And it gets down to the point of like in health, whether you're talking about personal trainers or doctors, is like nobody's actually trying to solve the problems, which the, the real problems are in understanding and education. Yes. I think health is fundamentally an education problem. But I think the world we live, you know, health is a uh, low time preference endeavor. And the world yeah. is a high time preference world, which is which stems from the fundamental incentives baked into the money. So if we use high time preference money, that high time preference, because money trickles into everything we do, that that um, incentive structure built, baked into the money trickles into everything we do. And yep. You know, I'm not a physical therapist anymore. I got out of that um, a couple of years ago. And one of my biggest things right now in terms of the way I'm thinking about conversations around health is actually bringing up the idea that we, in order to move forward productively from a disease world to a health world, we have to take a serious look at changing language because um, yeah. when we talk, we throw around the word health, the word health way too liberally. And most of the time it doesn't reflect reality, right? Like I'll give you three examples. We talk about healthcare system. All we have is a disease care system. We have a system that is there to diagnose and intervene with disease. That has nothing to do with health. So if we change healthcare to disease care system, that would be a reflection of reality. And maybe it would help people acknowledge that we have no fucking healthcare system. All we have is a system to take care of sick people. It waits for you to get sick. And then it stops you from dying. It does nothing to help you understand health because people who work in that, those professions, which we call health professionals, are actually just disease professionals. And their job is to have you have a little bit less disease, but, but the incentive baked in is to, is to have you keep them coming to you for advice because that's how you make money. So healthcare should be disease care. Health professionals should be disease professional. And health insurance should be disease insurance. Those are actually what they are. Like if maybe if we stopped calling them health, we would acknowledge, wow, we really don't do anything for health. So it's no wonder no one's healthy. <laughs> I, would, I would even go, I would even take it a step further and say it's actually symptom care. Sure. Because they're symptom they're management, not, palliative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're not even like in reality, they're not trying to, they're not trying to care for the disease even. No. Like we're most not trying of the to time, assess the cause. It's just symptom management. That's what the money is yeah. made from. Yep. Most, most of the, especially the, the pharmaceutical industry is just like no, almost none. It's almost kind of like the, the shit coin, um, yes. like market because, because <laughs> like most of the pharmaceuticals out there, they don't, they don't solve a problem. They hijack your body systems to try and like, just like, like we were saying, just alleviate the symptoms versus actually take alleviating the problem. It's like, Oh, you're, you're yeah. hurt. Uh, take some Tylenol and just mask up that pain signal. You're good. Like you'll be fine. Yeah. Like, like that, no, that is not the, how that works. That's the equivalent of your house burning down. Your fire alarm goes off. Fire alarm is the pain you feel. Taking a Tylenol is like taking the battery out of the fire alarm and pretending like it's all good. Your house is still <laughs> burning down. Like we need to stop telling people to do that's this. Really this good. is part of the problem. Um, and I, I think it just really, it's just like a misunderstanding of pain. Pain is like this wise old man that teaches you lessons. And if you ignore the old man, you have to retake the lesson and the lesson becomes more shitty, the more time yeah. you take it. And everyone's being told that no, everyone's being told not to listen to this old dude that is wise as shit by the people who are claimed to be the health experts. Yeah. And, and then, it's like, then once it comes to the point of where they want to come ask the old dude for advice, he's dead. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're, you, you, you can't even, it sounds like he's talking Chinese because you haven't listened to him for so long. You forgot how to speak his language. It's like, I think yeah. that's where this body literacy thing comes in, where we don't even know how to self-regulate because we don't know how to interpret signals from our body, whether that's pain or fatigue or low energy or shitty mood. It's like, 
no one is taking the time to just like understand what their body's telling them. And I think the time element is part of why fiat creates a disease world is if fiat is stealing your time, you have no time to think about health, to engage with the process of health or to understand what your body's telling you. So it seems like that's this funda fundamental thing that, okay, we become our incentives. Fiat is high time preference. Health is a low time preference endeavor. Those are not compatible. Therefore, health, a world of health is not compatible with the world of fiat. So how do we, you know, how do we move forward beyond that? And I think Bitcoin presents a low time preference money, which aligns with the low time preference endeavor of health. Um, you know, and, and just the business incentives, I saw it firsthand as a physio, man, it was insane. Regardless of what your intentions are, I, I believe, I firmly believe that everyone who goes into medicine, physio, any of the quote unquote, you know, disease professions goes in with good intentions to help people. Same with personal trainers, right? These people go in with honest intentions. But they don't um, understand the money system. Right. And whether they realize it or not, they become the incentive built into their money, which affects their industry. So as a physio, my incentive, whether I'm trying to be a good person and help people or not, is I need you to rely on coming to see me and come to see me multiple times a week in order for me to make money. Because if I teach you the root cause of your problem and I empower you with an understanding to take care of yourself, you don't need me. You don't pay me. So I'm not, oh, that's even if I want to do that, I'm not incentivized to do that. It's against my business interests to help you with your health in a way that empowers you. I have to keep you dependent on me. And this is the fiat beast that has engulfed and corrupted everything related to disease care so that health has no, has no financial incentive right now unless we innovate better ways to make money from health. It's also why I decided I didn't want to be a personal trainer too, because I'm also not a good personal trainer in, the, in that sense. Like I, like the friends that I've helped with like their health and fitness is like, I like most people that I I've, I've identified that most people that say they want a personal trainer is they want somebody that's just going to hound them to get in the gym. And that's, that's not, that's not me. Like they want a forfeit like, responsibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like, and, and to the point that you're making is like the people that I do train is like, I make it clear that it's like, I'm teaching, I'm going to like teach you. I'm going to educate you more than I'm going to train you so that you don't have to come back to me because I have more better things I want to do with my time than be here with you. <laughs> and you can't um, do it for them at the end of the day, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they must do it themselves. I think, I think there's a difference between guiding someone, which is really just like, here's what I've done that worked. Here's some good resources have at it. You need to take the, the cost of you improving is responsibility. If you're not willing to pay that, you can go pay someone for some fake solution, you know, that they might convince you is going to make you feel better. But the only, at the end of the day, the only way to improve one's health is to pay the price of responsibility. If you're not willing to pay that and accountability, you're not ready yet. So. Yeah. And I was gonna, um, you brought it up, uh, a few minutes ago. Um, the whole, the individual, because of the fiat system, they don't have the time. Yes. That's, and that's specifically a big one as far as like spirituality and philosophy goes. Um, because the vast majority of the, the participants in the economy today, because of the fiat systems and the incentives baked into it, they don't have the time to, you know, go into all this health stuff. But that also means they don't have the time to manage their, the, like their healthy mind state. Hmm. And that can, and like, if you take that, so I, I just wrote, um, 
an article for my medium, like it got a little bit, a little esoteric. So, which it didn't get a whole lot of traction, which there's nothing wrong with that. But what I argued in this article is that individuals that are suffering from anxiety and depression for just like the easy ones. Um, if, if you're an individual that's looking to alleviate those and you're trying to truly alleviate it as far as like low time preference, like for the rest of your life kind of thing, they have to take the time to understand the body so that they can understand how the body, like specifically like mind states, like the release of cortisol, for example, how those stimulate specific environments within the body, like chemical balance within the brain that is more conducive to negative thoughts than it is to positive thoughts. And you understand how to manage the physiological and nutritional side then you can gain the time to better like manage the psychological aspect to your own mind, as far as like understanding, like, like what you're feeling and why. And then you can also get into the aspect of kind of like figures, like sussing out what kind of spirituality you have, like what you actually believe. And then once you get to that point, then you can actually start to figure out like your own life philosophies. And then you actually get to the point of holistic full spectrum health. Like we're talking about. Yeah. I think if people, you know, the, the, the medical world, I have a friend that went through medical school. He told me something really profound. He said, medical school is uh, really expensive drug rep training now. Yep. They're technicians. And, and that I was just like, that is insane that it makes, so you know, depressing. once you understand it, it, it doesn't make it any more comfortable to realize what's no, going on, it makes but it, it but, more uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. But at least you under, you know, I get comfort from understanding it. And then I get also discomfort from seeing like how fucked up this has just become. But I think if we viewed depression and anxiety as an adaptive response to be understood, not a problem to be covered up, it's a one, it's a completely different paradigm of how people uh, approach that. Right. Yeah. And I, I really think the asymmetry of we learn nothing about health. So we are at the whims of the knowers, which it turns out don't actually understand this shit. They're just want to give you a pill. Um, if we understand that dynamic, well, it has to fall back to personal responsibility. You can't expect mm -hmm. these people that are deeply entrenched into this um, pharma-based programming to change on a dime what they're doing and actually start to help people. Number one, they're not financially incentivized to do that. Number two, it's nope. hard as shit to pivot like that. So it must come back to the individual. And so long as people are always trying to find an exogenous solution to their health problems, right? The pill, the person, the thing, the tool, the trainer, um, there's this misallocation of capital, which is, you should be spending time learning about health slash we should fix the political mess so that we actually teach kids about health. Like the easy solution is teach kids about health and money. They're the only two things that affect every human, regardless of what they're interested in. Like yeah. what the hell, what that, that seems so glaring and obvious. And you know, you can take the perspective that they're trying to make us sick and stupid. I don't think it's completely that there's probably some of that. Um, I don't either. But I, I really think at the end of the day, you know, one thing I see with Bitcoiners is like they speak the language of personal responsibility to to become a Bitcoiner. You must accept personal responsibility for understanding money. It's the only way there. Um, yep. And so and that, that also yeah. that also explains kind of like the, the prevalence of popularity of stoicism within um, within Bitcoiners as well. Yes, because you, you can't you can't practice stoicism effectively without specifically accountability and responsibility because you're like. Stoicism is all about taking an accountability and responsibility over your outputs as, and like your 
what you're outputting as far as from yourself to input into a conversation. Like, for example, I was given kind of a lecture in a spaces a while ago um, to some individuals that were kind of screaming at each other. And I was like, like, guys, like, I get that the, you can, you can want to have an actual like debate back and forth, the whole, like, like actually exchange information and everything and suss out who, like, who is more educated and who's like the better, like, resource of information like you're talking about but for stoics like the whole point is to leave emotion out of the conversation like leave emotion out so that people can figure out what the hell is actually going on and like that and you like we can take we can tie that back into like politics in particular like recently is like everything's just trying to hijack emotions so it's just yeah yeah it's all rhetoric it's like we've lost all substance and uh you know, this health health network I work for, we have this big network of people who like actively engage with health at a serious level and then are willing to have conversations like dialogue. And one of the hardest things to extract, and I think we've done a pretty good job of it, is productive disagreement. Like we literally have a document called the dialogue covenant where it's like rules of engagement. And it's, it's really based on the like principles of Bitcoin where it's like, we don't need a mediator or an arbiter. We don't need rulers. We need rules that we all agree on and then we don't need rulers, but we all have to enforce, we all have to know those rules and enforce them. Like, you know, always be respectful, give people a chance to talk, be more interested in learning than being right. I think that's a big thing that I think people need to buckle down on. Yeah. Um, the idea of just having, um, it's a code of honor. Exactly. It's a code of honor. And what that has done is allowed us to respectfully mention when someone's using a logical fallacy, well, people know what that is. So we can like lovingly and kindly mention, well, you're targeting the person, not what they're saying. And, you know, we've just curated this community of people who are willing to engage in productive disagreement, which I think is very hard in the modern world because social media is not conducive to it at all. Um, But I think (laughs) that's how we get to truth, right? Is like by disagreeing respectfully and acknowledging like, you know, if two people are having a conversation trying to figure out who knows more or whose truth is more valid, you have to be comfortable accepting that it's better to be wrong and learn than it is to try and defend a shitty position. And, you know, I think that ties back into stoicism because it teaches you to like recognize your ego and to view the world objectively uh, instead of just being stuck in your own uh, way of thinking, which goes back to what you were saying. It's like people are just stuck in, in these belief structures that they're so heavily invested in. And, and I think the biggest belief structure is fiat, right? Like, especially yeah. people who have all my friends that work in finance are going to be the last people to adopt Bitcoin because they are so deeply programmed and the effort to unlearn everything they paid a shitload of money to learn and are getting nudged. And, you know, the hilarious thing is like, they all think they're fucking geniuses right now because they're like, yeah, look at my portfolio, look at these stocks. I'm like, dude. That has nothing to do with you. You could Nobody's blindly, portfolio is doing good right you, now. You could get a dog to wag its tail and choose stocks and they would have looked like a genius too. It's like, you know, it's so, <laughs> it's, it's so crazy. Um, but, you know, in your view, um, how does Bitcoin incentivize health? How does, how does Bitcoin help us get out of this disease-centric culture? Like what are ways, what are things you're thinking of these days of how Bitcoin has helped you with your health or how Bitcoin is helping people you know or people around you um, maybe be nudged towards engaging with the process of health. What are you, what are you seeing? Well, the benefit to Bitcoin is that it touches so many different um, ways of thought 
as in like economics, finance, what is money, um, proof of work, like all of these different dynamics, like it, it, it really challenges the, uh, the accepted narrative and it breaks a lot of molds in the sense of whichever one, it, like whichever aspect grips you and causes you to look into Bitcoin more, it's going to cause you like, it's almost like each one is like a little pulling out of like the matrix a little bit. Like it brings, it breaks you back up above the clouds and you're like, Oh damn. Like there is a different way of thinking about this stuff. And then once you go back down and then you like below the clouds and you see the whole world as it is within the system, you're like, dude, this isn't right. Yeah. Like you this, can't unsee this... it once you see it. Yeah. Cause like, then you start looking at everything and you're like, you really like, like, your finance buddies, like once you get into the system, like after you like break out and then you see like, for example, like specifically what money and currency is like the difference between the two. And then you get back in and then you see like how inefficient all these different financial products are. And you like, you start pointing to them and you asking these guys like, Hey, like, you know, like this could be done better. Like if it wasn't from within this system, if we reimagined it, like there's definitely ways we could do this better. And they're like, no, no way. The U.S. dollar is like the best system. Like U.S. dollar and the Swiss system is like the best we're going to get. It's like, man, if you really feel that way, that's extremely depressing. So this happens in health all the time. So the health network I work for is specialized in feet. So I have a lot of colorful disagreements with people, like, for example, with dietrists who slap people in orthotics, which are not only they're worse than useless, not only do they not help, they actually make the problem worse. It's it's quite interesting. Imagine that. But what I see with them is the same thing I see with the incumbents in the financial world in that their salary depends on them not knowing the truth. Yeah. And it, well, it's like, like, the well, structure you're dealing with. You're screwed. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I mean, I just, like for those that don't really buy into that, it's like if you're a priest for a theology and whatever it is that you pray to, you there is proof out there that say that theology, I'm not saying anything about any of the current ones or anything like that. But if there was hard proof that your system was wrong, would you be able to accept it and stay in that position and continue to do a really good job in that position? I would argue not because you're going to constantly be faced with that reality. And you're like, man, this isn't right. And that, and that's precisely what, what, what the, 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 the foot people are doing your, in your example. It's just, ugh. cause yeah, like it's, people are stuck. Was, there was a different, uh, there was something else I wanted to touch on that I can't remember now. It, hopefully it comes to you, but what I'll add in the meantime is that person who gets these nudges from reality saying that what they have adopted and thought to be true their whole lives and have built a career on. Once they start to get more and more nudges that that doesn't reflect the truth, every nudge is, a, is like a little bit of pain, right? And what I've seen is that yeah. the people who go get to the other side simply experience too much pain to bear. And so the pain of changing their perspective and literally having to change their entire worldview, which is fucking painful, because um, implicit in that is the admission that you've been wrong most of your life. Uh, when that pain is less than the pain you're experiencing by constantly getting nudged from reality, saying that what you're doing is fake and bullshit, then people switch. So it's almost like pain is the driver of all human change. 
some people simply aren't experiencing enough pain yet to to change. And I think yeah. in the world of finance, those dudes are in for a world of pain because um, <laughs> it's not going to get any better. Like you can't. Pain, make... pain is the most successful teacher. It is. I agree. You can give into it early, or you can wait until it's unbearable, like you're saying. And unfortunately, most people wait till there's cat. Catastrophe is often the um, genesis of transformation, <laughs> which sucks. <laughs> that, ooh, that's a, clip it, that. Like that's a, yeah. that's a good one right there. I stole that from someone, hundred <laughs> um, percent. But it's you know my parents are a prime example with you know they're in the the fiat world. They've lived in the fiat world. They're boomers. They've been treated very well by the fiat world. They think they're getting rich in the fiat measuring stick, and until they see their purchasing power get sliced in half until they see, um, until they experience pain, there's no need to change. Like, yeah. and, and it's really, I've, I've come to understand that, you know, I've always been frustrated when I see someone in pain and they're not taking ownership, it frustrated me. But now I've just realized that when the pain is enough and they're ready, they will change. And I'm not going to stress over trying to change them quicker. Um, you just have to make sure that they have the tools to interpret the pain. And then other than that, it's like, it's just a matter of time, right? Yeah. And, um, and like specifically the pain of being wrong is so much easier to take than the pain of regret. Yes. Like I had so much regret, like almost a decade ago, like basically I turned my life around when I enlisted in the military, like when I enlisted the army, I, that was basically my decision to like, I'm not going to do this regret crap anymore. Yep. And I, 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 I will, I can put myself comfortably as a living testament that the pain of not, of being wrong is I will take that over the pain of regret any day. It's like being wrong is the cost of learning. So not wanting yeah. to be wrong means never wanting to learn. And that's a really sketchy yeah. thing to be uh, in a world that's constantly changing that you have to adapt to, or you get left alone and basically die metaphorically or actually um, not wanting to be wrong means you are in for a world of pain. Yeah. Well, and that, okay. So that, that brings up another topic that I want to touch on too. It's like the funny thing about like what's been happening the last couple of years. Um, and th this will overlap there. There's a, there's significant overlap between the Bitcoiners and the gym bros. And the reason is now there's a lot of gym bros that are Bitcoiners, a lot of Bitcoiners that are gym bros. But if you take the two different groups, how do you define gym bro? Just uh, for someone who hasn't heard the term, um, paint a picture. Like five years ago, it would have been the guys that we were all reading articles on bodybuilding.com. Like you specifically like rely on bodybuilding.com. You're in the gym all the time, like pumping iron, like classic kind of meathead. That's, you know, okay. that whole shtick. Um, but the, the, what the interesting parallels between the gym bros and the Bitcoiners is that the gym boy, the, the Bitcoiners, obviously they've seen like how much of the system is wrong. And like, they, like, they like kind of had the, their mold broken and they're like, okay, like this isn't adding up. We're not going to do this. But the gym bros specifically are the really interesting thing that like, I don't think a lot of people were actually like cognizant of or paying attention to. So, and the reason I bring them up is that over the last like 20 years consistently is within exercise science and fitness science and physiology and health and biomechanics, the science has been constantly like almost on a, like a monthly basis. Like, Hey, like the stuff that we thought we're finding out is incorrect. Right. Like, like whether it's nutrition or physiology or whatever, like some of the stuff, like 
for example, when my dad went through high school and when he was a power lifter and all this other stuff, he was telling me about how they were using Pepsi as a pre-workout. So now, and nowadays we know it's like, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to do, and like, by the way, I still see people in the gym drinking this crap as pre-workout. No, like you don't drink carbonated waters or carbonated anything. Like you don't have a bunch of sugar as far as your pre, like, it's just a bunch, like just a bunch of no-nos that we know now. Um, but the gym bros, like they're like, they had already had a lot of experience with like, Hey, like just because it's coming from science doesn't necessarily mean it's dogma or doctrine. And so for the last couple of years, what's been happening, whether it's, you want to talk about Blovid or like all this other stuff, um, specifically finding out that our institutions are not doctrine. They're not a religious institution. Like they are capable of being wrong because they're led by humans because humans are constantly wrong all the time. And then like, if you're paying attention to that and then you're paying attention to like theoretical physics, like talk, like the, what was it last year? They found out that there was neutrinos down in like that they picked up in Antarctica that were going in the exact opposite direction of any of the other neutrinos that they found. So they're like, what does this mean? Like we have to rethink everything. (laughs) There is far more what we don't understand than what we do understand. And even what we do understand, we don't understand all of it. So like we basically don't understand it. So like the people that are in these like groups, like the Bitcoiners and the gym bros, like these are the ones, these are the individuals that are like, we're the groups that are just like, okay, we shouldn't, we should like really avoid getting into these echo chambers and these dogmas. Cause then it like, then it like specifically the fiat dogma. Cause then it like, then you like get all the other problems that we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, divert lack of diversity equals death, right? Like monoculture in, in the natural yeah. world gets just destroyed because it's unnatural. And I think the, this, um, monoculture of ideas that is, uh, you know, unwilling and unflexible to ever change is going to get broken, right? It's like, it's like a piece of too much rigidity produces fragility, right? It's like make an air make an aircraft wing out of, um, cold world stainless steel. steel. It's going to snap. It has to be flexible, right? It has to move so that it doesn't get destroyed. And I think, you know, unfortunately there's this like stairwell of pain where you're unflexible, unflexible, you get more and more hints from the, the, the outside world that you're wrong, and then you just get shattered. And that's super painful. And you know, if on it's step dangerous. two, instead of going to step 10, if on step two, people were just curious, I think curiosity is this thing that's lost now, where curiosity implies you don't know. It's right, like implied in curiosity is, I don't know what the truth is, but I kind of want to find it out. So I'm going to be open minded enough to like seeing what's out there and making my own judgment think for myself. Um, but if you're not curious and you're and you think you know the truth and you know just enough to think you know everything, you're gonna get destroyed in enough time. Or you're gonna shrink the world you engage with so that you're never wrong until you're just like in a silo <laughs> not talking to anyone. That's not fun either. That's painful. Um Ugh, yeah. one thing I want to talk about is this this okay, if we if we work down assumptions, we say, okay, we become our incentives, money is the foundation. Uh, for culture, those incentives permeate everything we do. Fiat is high time preference. Two things I want to unpack, because I know you know a lot about these, um, or at least one of them, one of the articles you wrote was all about this is high time preference food and high time preference relationships. And <laughs> so let, let's kind of like, let's start with food and keep it high level. We won't get into the weeds, but this idea that, you know, 
the food we that we eat now, even the way we farm is high time preference, right? Yeah. And, and even to preface this, high time preference means you value the present more than the future. Low time preference means you value the future more than the present. So delayed gratification. Yes, long-term thinking, delayed gratification, that's all low time preference. Mm -hmm. High time preference is like, I want the one cookie right this second instead of two tomorrow. It's like the, the present is so much more important. And this idea that, you know, how does this stem from fiat? Well, if I don't spend a fiat dollar today, it's gonna be worth less tomorrow. So foundationally, whether I acknowledge that or not, I'm incentivized to spend today and not save because it can be worth less tomorrow. Whereas Bitcoin flips that. What I spend today will be, you know, one sat today is gonna be worth more tomorrow. My fun, my foundational incentive, whether I acknowledge it or not, is I'm going to, I'm incentivized to save instead of spend, whereas fiat is I want to spend instead of save. So let's talk about high time preference food. When, when someone says high time preference food, what does that make you think of? And how do we sort of give a little bit of context as to how our food that we buy in the supermarket is high time preference from the individual and how farmers are being basically forced to adopt a high time preference way of making food to make cheaper, quicker, to make food quicker quicker and cheaper um, because we've just fried the soils and it's the yeah. only way we, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that just from a high level. How has yep. our food become high time preference and what does that mean? Yeah, so we'll start with the food and then go back to the farmer and then wrap it back into the food again. Um, so with the food, this touches back on what we've already like briefly touched on earlier as far as like the majority of what you find in the, the Americanized supermarkets, whether it's Walmart or Target or whatever, like a, a lot of your listeners have probably heard the whole like health shtick of like when you go to the supermarket, you make the ring around the outside aisles. Like yeah. that's where all the healthy stuff is because the, the inside is where you'll find the sh like the cereals, the sugars, the processed breads, the food like products. I call them food like products. Yes. Not food, um, food like products. And we say food like products specifically because they're highly processed and highly processed means that like, Again, food like they're going to say that they have all these different nutrients in them and everything, trying to argue that they're still like close to like real food when in reality they're the, like one of the farthest things you can get. Even more um, weird, they'll actually say that the frank and processed foods are better for you than the organic. real foods. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they're like, all oh, those avocados aren't as good. We've jacked up these nutrients in this glob of goop. It's, got and more it's better than avocados. It. Yeah. And so like the, the problem with these, with these foods is that because they're processed and because they're amalgamated in this way, um, and they say that like all these nutrient inputs are in there, that it like, it's, it's basically the same thing. And it could be farthest from the truth, from the truth, because what most people aren't aware of is that within the body, um, when it comes to breaking down food or food like products, your, the way your stomach and your body works is that we secrete specific enzymes, whether it's analase, which is to break down sugar, which is in your saliva, or whether it's protease, which is to break, which is a, uh, an enzyme to break down protein. Um, these enzymes are very, very, very specifically engineered. Like, I, okay, I don't want to say engineered because it sounds like, you know, aliens made us or something. Um, but Evolution has carved these things to be highly specific to, to work best with food. Yes. Maybe that's it's, a good way I, the way I, the way I like to, I prefer to describe it is that our body learned how to uh, like break down these naturally occurring uh, compounds. Mm. Like okay. our over through evolution, our body learned how to produce these specific enzymes that break down these, pro, these, these compounds that are naturally occurring and consistently occurring in our lifestyle, yes. whether it's 
fructose, which is sugar from fruit, or like lactose, which is from milk, or you talk about protein that's coming from beef or chicken or whatever. The enzymes that we produce are specifically structured to break down these specific chemical compounds. The problem is is that these processed foods, these food-like processed foods, um, the the compounds that are present in them, because they're man-made and they're not naturally occurring, they don't fit the very specific puzzle-like structure, puzzle piece-like structure of these enzymes, which means that these enzymes don't break them down properly. And this also comes into very, very specific relevance with regards to diabetes and insulin. Um, because there's so many fake sugars that are out there, like specifically like diet drinks, like these diet sodas that I would, I would rather see everybody drinking regular soda that has real sugar, natural sugar in it than all this diet crap that's out there because this diet crap is like, Oh, it's still sweet, but it has, it doesn't have calories from sugar. So it's healthier. No, because the problem is, is that again, going back to this enzyme situation, is these fake sugars, when you introduce them into the body and the insulin is released in response to that sugar intake, insulin is no different than these other enzymes. When insulin is in the system and it cannot break down or it can't at least stimulate the, the, situ- the solutions to breaking down the sugar and getting it out of your blood, then because when it comes up to these fake sugars, it's like, oh, like the, the insulin looks at it. It's like, oh, wait, you're not who I'm here for. So I'm going to hang around. <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to hang around until I find what I, who I'm here for. Yeah. So then you have a system. And I haven't board. found what I'm here for. So I'm going to call way more of my friends to come because we got to have a search party. Yeah. And then, so then what you, what you, what results is you still have the fake sugar in your system. Now you have the insulin in your system. Neither of them are getting clear. Right. So then, and like, so for this also touches on cancer because one of the things that I also don't think most of the public is aware of is that cancer is really just uncontrolled growth. And it's also a reaction is okay. I don't, I don't want people to quote me on this because I'm probably going to miss, I misidentify or miss like analyze this whole situation. It's all good. It's all good but, to go with it. Um, cancer tends to be stimulated when our body is coming in contact with specific compounds or, or relationships that is not normal for our bodies. So cancer is an adaptive response. Yes. It's an adaptive response and it tends to just result in uncontrolled growth. Um, which requires fuel and what, you know, back to what you're saying, if we're not able to remove sugars from our system, despite insulin being out there trying to search for it, there is this giant pool of fuel that is a feast for cancer cells. Yep. Right. They have and, a buffet every freaking day because our body's not able to get rid of this excess fuel. Yeah. And so this, like, this is where it gets really, really scary and it should terrify everybody because back to the, back to our, uh, our analogy of the fake sugar being there, insulin, not getting cleared, both are hanging out in the body. So when they're both are hanging out in the body, you get the situation where you have, where you now have one compound that is man-made that shouldn't be there. That is, that is stimulating the insulin that, sh- that technically shouldn't be there. So the insulin's hanging out, and the more the insulin hangs out, it increases the, the susceptibility to develop type 2 diabetes, right? And then the other thing is hanging out there, and that's going to increase the susceptibility to develop cancer because it's a man-made product that shouldn't be there to begin with. Hmm. But it gets worse if 
that whole situation, if that tendency, if that lifestyle, if that behavior isn't changed to prevent that situation from continually occurring, if it goes down the road and that situation continues to occur and the individual develops type two diabetes, where the bot, the pancreas isn't releasing enough insulin to clear out sugars as, as would naturally occur. Then you get into a situation where because your pancreas isn't releasing enough insulin to clear sugar, then there's more sugar in the body consistently that is feeding that cancer that you just talked about that is getting stimulated by the fake sugar that was already there to begin with. So it, it, it turns into this cascade of, of problems. And then on top of that, which we didn't, which I failed to talk about earlier, is the the inflammatory response to all this. Yes. Because like high sugar glucose intake tends to result in a high inflammatory response within the body. And then on top of that, because inflammation isn't just all negative. There's a lot of, there's a lot of like material out there the last couple of years that suggests that inflammation in general is bad in the body. And that's not true. It's an adaptive response. Yeah. It's an adaptive response. It's supposed to do that. Whether it's a virus that the body, like, like the body will kick off inflammation. If you have a viral infection to try and slow down the, the reproduction rate of the virus to kick that virus out of the body. And then on the other hand too, with working out, um, inflammation is a natural response to, uh, to the like adaptation response. Like it, it stimulates, it also stimulates healing and growth. I think if we just redefined not redefined, but if we sort of accepted that inflammation is the process of healing. Um, but if the process of healing, which is designed to be like an acute response of like, okay, damage, acute healing, repair happens, homeostasis. If we're constantly in healing mode, using all of our energy to heal, um, what we really should be asking, which is the fundamental problem of why chronic inflammation is so shitty is what is constantly creating stimulus for a body to always have to heal? Like what is the threat that's yeah. constantly happening that's forcing inflammation to happen chronically? Um, and you know, you have to go pretty deep in understanding in order to get there, but let me see if I can tag this to this. Okay. We, we still have with, to tie it back to soil. I mean, yeah, let, we'll talk about soil next, but okay. Fiat is high time preference high time preference foods have worked our way into our system as fake sugars, right? Because they're really cheap to make. They don't take much time. You don't actually have to like go through the process of farming nutrient dense foods. You can literally just make something in a factory and say it's better than the natural thing because they're so cheap. People are incentivized to buy low calorie foods, especially yep. when money is scarce and, and real food is scarce because it takes energy and, you know, people just are unwilling to go through the arduous yeah, energy bugs. intensive process. And so really fiat causes fucking cancer and diabetes. Let's just leave it there because that's the train yep. of thought going from high time preference money creates high time preference food, which creates disease. And when you layer high time preference disease management on top of that, it's even worse. Then, it, so yeah, then it's a nuclear bomb. Then it is. And I think that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. So let's talk about farming because high time preference food, these food like products are cheap and easy to make. Mm -hmm. Why are we being nudged to, to make the cheap and easy to make things that are causing us disease? Well, I think part of that problem is the ecosystem of farming, right? And this yeah. idea that um, even the real foods, like even if we, if, if we compare Franken food like products to real food, um, Real food is supposed to be nutrient dense. Franken foods are nutrient empty, but calorie rich. So we're basically overfed and undernourished. And yep. 
our signals saying that we've gotten the nutrients never stop. So we just keep eating these empty bombs of calories of toxic chemicals, these soups. Um, And then we wonder why everyone's got diabetes and cancer. It's like, it seems pretty obvious, but even the foods (laughs) that are supposed to be nutrient dense are now like at a significant deficit to what their, what their nutrient capacity is. So let's talk about how high time preference, um, has an impact on farming. What is high time preference farming and what is low time preference farming? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So we'll start back at the supermarket again. Um, because that's really kind of like the, the biggest driver. Um, the supermarkets are producing these Franken foods and they sell more of these Franken foods because like we've discussed, they're cheap and they're addictive. So more people and they never come go back bad. This is another thing. <laughs> and they never go bad. So like they, they incentivize you three ways right there. They taste good, they're cheap, and they don't go bad basically ever. So they're like, oh, just buy a bunch of it, stick it up in your cupboards, you'll be good if, like, you know, the world ends, which, you know, you won't. Or as a supermarket, you can just order a shit ton of it and not have to worry about it going bad. It's like we can just keep it on the shelf. And then make make basically 10 to 1, 100 to 1 margins on it, and you're you're swimming in cash. Exactly. And so they're incentivizing the farmers in this way to produce the crops that help them to produce these products. High fructose corn syrup corn being part of it so palm they oil. palm oil uh rapeseed like uh texas slim talks about by the way texas slim and the beef initiative like yes he and i like he and i got onto this like when he started everything early early on so like if your viewers haven't like consumed his content like go find it uh but uh modern t-man on twitter is his handle he's, um, he's so smart yeah. and i think he's like yeah, if you can go to a beef initiative meetup, because um, yes. beef is coalescing with Bitcoin in the most beautiful. Um, it's like a relationship that's meant to be because growing ranch and beef is high time preference proof of work or um, sorry, low time preference proof of work. Um, yeah. Whereas like, you know, making Frankenfoods is high time preference proof of factory. That's all it is. It's not proof of work. It's proof of stake, really. Yeah, yeah. And these so these farmers are getting pushed by these major supermarket corporations to produce more corn so they can produce more of these products. And then at the same time, they're also getting pushed by, well, I'll get into that in a second. So these farmers are getting pushed to like really over-industrialize these monocropping strategies, um, greater yield, faster yield. And then the GMO like aspect of these um, crops to begin with, um, they're trying to like between selective breeding and some uh, eugenics, as far as like manipulating the genetics of the the uh, the crops in, in like within themselves to produce, you know, bigger corn like cobs, bigger um, like spinach leaves, like all these uh, like bigger apples, bigger fruit. Like they're trying to make everything bigger, um, greater yield. But the problem is, is that monocropping is not conducive to soil health. Like it it. it really really destroys soil health and the reason that people should care is that if you want nutrients out of your crops the crops need to get nutrients from somewhere yeah like it's it's like they, they it's not immaculate conception like they don't just pull the nutrients out of the air like yeah. starts with um, soil yeah it starts with the soil because really there's only a few nutrients that crops are getting from the air and that's going to be nitrogen and carbon dioxide well and you know light but whatever um so like down in the soil we have to think about how 
like how the nutrients get to the crops, get to the root system in general. And that's actually through what's called the mycorrhizal um, biome or the microbiome. Like I wouldn't call it a microbiome technically because it's huge, but it's called mycorrhizal. And that's where like fungi and bacteria are breaking down all these. So like, for example, nitrogen, which is a huge part of fertilizer. Um, a lot of the nitrogen that's in fertilizer that like these, uh, these farmers, these monocroppers are putting on their fields, it doesn't really break down that well so that the plant life can use it, ends up getting washed away in the rain anyway. And that's how it, and then it ends up polluting like the watershed and the river systems and all that other stuff. And then it, like, it'll cause like ponds and lakes to, there's too much nitrogen and it stimulates algae growth and then it kills the pond or the lake. And then you have to deal with all that crap. Um, but then, so back to the soil. And when you have depleted soil, you have weak plants. Yeah. And weak plants require protection, artificial protection in order to survive. And so that's where you have like herbicides, insecticides, all these insane chemicals designed yep. to kill life. Let's like they're designed to kill life. They claim they selectively kill certain types of life, herbs or insects. Too bad but let's be real. Adapts. It's not good for humans either, right? Anything that yeah. kills life is going to have some sort of effect on us. So the monocrop is so unnatural and such a beautiful buffet for nature because it never occurs in nature that you can have swarms of insect come and destroy a whole crop. So they have to load it with chemicals to get the insects away. They have to load it with herbicides to get the weeds away because monocrops are by their nature so unnatural. So yeah, you just end up having this soup of chemicals that are required to be applied to even have a yield. And when you do get that yield, it's a nutrient deficient chemical laden yield that just fucks humans up royally. Well, and then so like even like even worse than that is like they're growing these these GMO crops, these like specifically bread crops to be bigger, right? But then if like if people realize that this like the soil is being treated like this, whether like even without considering the pesticides and herbicides, just specifically with the fertilizer. Okay. If if the soil does isn't nutrient dense then the crop isn't going to be nutrient dense. Right. Like people need to understand that because uh, Slim, like we just recorded another podcast like a couple of weeks ago. Um, like the spinach that you're buying at the, gro at the grocery store has about one fifth or one sixth of the nutrient density as the spinach that our grandparents was eating. Wow. Like that, like that should scare everybody. Like it should, yeah. it should absolutely scare everybody because that means and that, and that contributes to what you're talking about with like the, the hunger cravings. Like you could, you could eat pounds of food right now and you're, you're not getting, you're not getting nearly enough, like as far as like what our parents were getting. And then like, you consider how many extra calories we're getting, like along with that nutrient deficient food that we're consuming. Then you understand why everybody's so freaking fat and unhealthy and like unhappy. Yep. And a lot of these micronutrients, um, they're the most important. And the, well, they're required for all the enzymes and the catalysts for body, yeah. for our body processes to actually happen. So as soon as our body processes, the natural essential processes that happen that most it's way too deep for even most people to be aware of when those stop happening, the body stops functioning optimally and it breaks down. Yep. Right. And so you have someone that goes in with like this, um, you know, like heart disease or some, or some, some sort of disease that's common. And the doctor say, yep, the solution is this drug. It's not anything to do with the fact that you have no enzymes functioning because you're getting no nutrients. No, no, no. That has nothing to do with it. I'm not trained to say that. But if you take this drug, it'll help you feel less shitty for a certain period of time. Yeah, That's literally how we deal with this. 
it's definitely not your poor health and your poor diet causing you to get poor sleep and all that other stuff. (laughs) It's not those things. No way. No. It's just, you're not taking this drug. That's the problem. Lack of this drug is the problem. Taking this drug is the solution. This is how dumb our system has has become. It's embarrassing, actually. Yeah. Dude, we've already gone for an hour and 23 minutes. It's kind of hard to believe. Um, Let's briefly talk about high tax preference relationships, and then we'll uh, find a time to schedule another conversation to continue. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's do um, it. I, you know, it's funny. I think Tinder is the epitome of high time preference relationships, right? It's like, <laughs> I, I want to do the least amount I don't of work. Know how more high time preference you can get than Tinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe porn is the most high, high time preference, okay. right? Like okay. I take my phone out of my pocket and I get the, the release. Um, <laughs> but this idea that, you know, I want pleasure or sex now instead of like, I need to take time to invest in a loving relationship that isn't easy, that requires work. This whole idea that fiat high time preference has literally weaseled its way into relationships. And I think that is the, you know, we didn't even get on this topic, but we talked about it um, on Twitter, this idea that the nuclear family, the, the, the structure, the unit of the family is like the core of um, a civilization and, and the core of health and the fact that we've essentially adopted high time preference incentives from fiat into our relationships has essentially systematically um, destroyed the nuclear family where now it's about like fleeting instant gratification relationships um, and no one is actually doing the work to engage in a true long term relationship, let alone have a family, which is like the the extrapolation of a long-term relationship. So, you know, is that, are, are you, what's your take on high time preference relationships, what that means, what you're seeing? Um, and do you think it's like a fiat derivative? Um, it's, it, it's absolutely a fiat derivative. And like, we could, like for when we ever, whenever you want to do the next one, we could just really break this down at nauseum because like yep. the high time preference relationships is going to be an aspect of people don't know themselves. And people don't know themselves because of the, the fiat hamster wheel that they're stuck on. That's a huge, that's a very, very huge one. Um, but at the same time, like the structure to a nuclear family, a successful nuclear, nuclear family, if two people come together, they have to be capable, they have to have the time, right, to be capable of hosting a nuclear family as far as like having children and being like being like meaningful parents and all this other stuff. But at the same time, they also have to have enough time to accrue resources to be able to support that, that the new life that they're going to be um, propagating. Right. And the fiat system doesn't allow that because nobody has the average number of jobs for a two adult household is 2.3. Like that, that right, that right there is a problem because that means that at least one of those individuals has two jobs. That's insane. And you yeah. compare that to the past where, you know, on one job, a family could live a, a moderate, meaningful life and, yep. and be okay financially. Just, yeah. just, and like, well, and like, cause when you approach it from that point, then you understand why so many people are so depressed. Like we understand, like, then you start to really understand why so many children are growing up with problems so early on in their life. Like if you don't have a meaningful family environment, if you don't have a healthy, meaningful family environment, you don't grow up with what I would argue are the, the proper um, 
the proper philosophies to life, like the proper character traits, as far as like respect for your elders, like all these other dynamics. And it's just, I don't want to like take away too much of your time with it because it's like, we could go really, really, really deep on it because part, like part of it is very much the philosophy of the individual because the individual doesn't know themselves very well. And if the individual doesn't know what they want, because you have to know yourself to know what you want ultimately. And if you don't know those two things, then you don't know who's going to be a good fit for you. Mm. If you don't know who's going to be a good fit for you, then you're going to hop from relationship for relationship. And then when you're doing that and you get into this high time preference, like mate selection, then it's, then it's just dopaminergic, just like all the other stuff we were talking about. Then you're, then, then you're not seeking real connection. You're seeking the high of like conquering somebody new and you're seeking the high of experiencing somebody. And like, there's a philosophy. Um, I don't know if you listen to Chris Williamson that much. Uh, uh, Modern wisdom is his podcast. Okay. Um, he brought up a thing in one of his other podcasts. I think he, I can't remember who he was talking to, but uh, Andrew Huberman is like, so there's a saying where if you want to sleep with the same person for the rest of your life, have, have multiple sexual partners because you're literally just going to experience the same, like you're going to, you're going to have one type of experience over and over and over and over again. But if you have one specific sexual partner, because like none of us stay the same for the rest of our lives, right. like based on what we knew and what, what we know and what we experience and what we experience and what we learn going forward, we're going to like evolve and change a little bit. Same with the partner. So that means that like, if you have a partner for 10 to 20 years, the person that you're engaging in intimacy with 20 years down the road is not going to be the same person that you're engaging with in intimacy today. Right. That's interesting. So if you want to have a varied sexual intimate experience, have it with one person in a meaningful relationship. And grow it together. will always be different. Yeah. Have it have, like have one meaningful relationship and grow together. That's very powerful. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even get into the health effects. Um, <laughs> you know, if if you want even if you okay, say you get to a point, say you're an outlier, the Bitcoin, you get to the point of being able to engage in a long-term low time preference relationship you start you you have the intention of creating a nuclear family if you're eating shit food you might not even be able to have a child and this is yeah. like this weird fertility rates are abysmal according to 50 years ago i mean even bc even before COVID, even before everyone jabbed themselves with things that crushed their fertility fertility was a big problem right it's, fertility, it's like before yeah before covid fertility was down 40 to 50 percent from 50 years ago it's going dude. down at a, at a rate of an average rate of one percent per year like if if you know people you the problem used to be i had a kid and i didn't want to right now the yeah. problem like you you know there's something messed up when people are like i want to have a kid and i can't the the thing that yep. used to be done by accident because it's so easy and healthy people do it so conveniently because that's what our machinery is designed to do. We can't even do anymore. And like, well, and and it's it's not that far fetched if people like these examples we've laid out in this discussion today, like with the insulin, like with the insulin, um, like the the insulin response to fake sugars. Like if like people take that example of how health complications within the body turn into a snowball effect and cause these cascades of other problems. It's not that hard to understand where if like a, a roundabout generally poor healthy lifestyle can result in something like fertility rates going down so like so bad. Because it like 
if you have problems like with your diet and with your lifestyle and you're not changing them and you're not working to change them, like as maybe not as soon as possible, but as like holistically and like as long-term as possible, like more problems just arise. Like, it, like, with like a, like a vehicle, for example, if you have one problem with your vehicle's operations, but it still works enough to drive it. If you don't get that solved, more problems are going to arise because you didn't solve that first problem. Like yeah. one problem is going to turn into three and then three is going to turn into nine. Yes. And then the wheels fall off and then you're really screwed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool to riff on these things. I mean, we, you know, maybe the next one we talk about how Bitcoin solves all these problems because we kind of just, but I think, I think it all starts with awareness, right? Like if someone's listening, yeah. if you're listening to this, thank you for getting to here. We hope you enjoyed the conversation uh, and found it insightful or informative. Um, and maybe the next one we do, we can sort of rehash some of the topics we talked about and talk about what do we see going on in the Bitcoin space that is essentially solving, like we talked about the high time preference element of a lot of these problems. Let's talk about the low time preference possibilities that Bitcoin yeah. can introduce. Um, part and have do it be more of a, yeah, have it part, part do, part do will be uh, <laughs> a lot more, <laughs> less riffing on the craziness and shittiness of the world and more riffing on like, this is why Bitcoin gives, this is why we are in Bitcoin. This is how Bitcoin gives us hope. Um, and, you know, I think just in times of radical chaos, there is an opportunity for radical imagination. And I think this idea that, you know, we can come up with these ideas of how we envision Bitcoin potentially solving these problems. It doesn't mean they're going to happen exactly as we say them. But I think in order to get somewhere, anytime we're trying to get somewhere, it always has to start with an idea. And I think we are in such times of radical disruption um, that it is actually the time to be creative and, and introduce some imagination because we now have a tool we've never had before. So in yeah. fact, the future will be totally different than anything we can imagine from within the system because we now have a radically different um, path that we can take. So, um, yeah, cause like the, to say well, before we close out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because the people are going to probably like, hopefully people don't take this as like, we're just complaining the whole time because the first step in solving a problem is identifying that there's a problem to begin with. And, and that's basically, it. that's basically all we did. Like, yes. that's all we did was identify all these different problems. Like you're saying, and like in the part two, we can definitely go through how and why bitcoin is the solution to all this and we can specifically talk about why i keep mentioning in spaces and on twitter is that people don't realize that bitcoin is going to usher in the the second renaissance yeah like the real second like the real renaissance because like the the historical renaissance was you know way 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 back and it's like we're vastly overdue i agree there'll be a renaissance in health there'll be a renaissance in energy production, I think, and art and creativity, like all the beautiful yep. things of humanity that fiat has suppressed or killed are going to blossom out of the, the, the swamp when all the fiat stuff just dies and all decomposes. And from those decomposing nutrients, you're going to have these beautiful flowers emerge and it's just going to be, dude, I'm here for it. This is like an Absolutely. exciting time to be alive. So thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing uh, what you know. If people want to find you and look you up before the next one we do, where do they find you? And then, uh, yeah, in the next one, we'll follow a similar trajectory in terms of what we talked about. And we'll take the flip side of how a uh, low time preference world could look like in terms of how it can specifically solve these problems and the things and the initiatives that we're seeing and witnessing and, you know, things people are doing to actually take action. Cause I think that's one of my favorite things about Bitcoiners is like, there's a lot of people in the world that complain, 
there's not a lot of people that are actually building shit to solve the problems, right? Like instead yeah. of whining ad nauseum about all the bullshit, um, identify the problem because it must start with awareness to solve it. You have to acknowledge there is a problem and have the, the mechanics of that problem to actually have a viable solution. Um, and there's Bitcoiners building shit like slim or like all of these people building tools, building communities, building networks. That's very exciting. We're like in the, we're in like the pre inning of the first inning of this. Um, so it'll be cool to do this. And then also like in a year or two, do it again and see like how have all these initiatives started to flourish. So let people know where they can find you. And then maybe in like a month or something like that, we'll do a round two. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, Bitcoiners take action. That's that's the big thing that sets us apart. Um, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at the so T H E E and then Mike Hobart. Um, my last name's H O B A R T. And then uh, for anybody that likes reading, uh, you can follow me on Medium. It's just at Mike Hobart. Powerful. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everyone listening. Uh, hold on for a sec after I stop the recording so we can sign off. And uh, for everyone listening, thanks for dropping by the Stoa. Uh, once again, it's a community funded platform, so you can either stream or boost sats through Fountain, uh, or you can donate on chain to the QR code on our homepage, bitcoinstoa.com. Uh, I think not taking advertisers ever is an important way to keep this like an authentic platform with the right incentives. And um, we kind of said before, even if we weren't recording this and putting it out, it would still be a conversation we're having. So thanks for hanging out and we'll catch you next time.